Hello and welcome to the Crossroads Church Podcast, where we desire to see a world transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, you can send a message to info at mycrossroads.co. Now, let's get our hearts and minds ready for a powerful message from God's Word. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? <laughs> well, good morning, family. How are y'all? That was lousy. Try that again. Good morning, family. How are y'all? All right, we'll take that. Um, so I wanted to intro the talk today using that kind of video clip. And so before I even mentioned it to the staff, I actually went and watched a bunch of videos. But some of the videos I watched were people setting up these complex um, domino things like that and then getting like almost completely done and then accidentally hitting it and destroying it or they set it all up and it's running really well and it gets like two thirds of the way and then one domino doesn't fall the way it's supposed to and just watching the frustration and the anxiety that that created and the reason that I wanted to start off with that video is because today I'm going to be talking about um, the miracle of provision we're in this series called When Pigs Fly and we're talking about miracles and I want to just start off by saying that I, I'm probably the least qualified to stand up here theologically and explain to you um, how God does miracles. And in fact, when I was initially approached about preaching on miracles, um, the first thought that came to my, my mind was just how inadequate I was for that and, and how humbling it was to recognize in that moment that God's ways are above my ways, that His thoughts are above my thoughts, and just going, how in the world do you stand up here and, and preach about miracles and so when I started thinking about that and I started thinking about the the video that we just saw I thought about how intimately um, all of those uh, dominoes are to one another they have to be strategically placed absolutely perfectly flawless that there's a science behind how far they need to be apart and all that stuff in order for all of that to work but when it happens and when it works the way it's supposed to when every piece falls into place exactly the way it's supposed to be, something pretty miraculous happens, and, and that's what we just witnessed in that, in that video. And so I want to kind of share this idea with you today, because what I'm going to share with you um, is a, really a, a testimony to just how intimately God worked in the midst of a situation, and that everything fell into place. I want to just pause for a second. I did this during first service, and just acknowledge the fact, Alice was actually here first service, so I got to speak to her. When, when we built the next-gen building, I was on staff as the youth and college and career pastor, and people assumed when we named Katie's Cafe, Katie's Cafe, that we named it after my wife, Katie, because we had just gotten married. And, uh, and that was actually, I told her I did because it made me look good, I didn't do that. Um, but we actually named it after Katie Moody, and we had all kinds of like uh, fun little drinks named after her and all this kind of stuff because we wanted to keep the testimony and the story of Katie um, going when we, when we did that. And so it, it was actually named after Katie Moody, not uh, my wife, but it gave us a chance to kind of share that story. And so I thank Zach from, in first service, and I want to thank him again for just kind of bringing that story back up and the truth and the testimony of her life and and everything back up as a reminder. So um, it was just awesome to see that. I, I knew that we were going to be showing a testimony about that, but I had no idea that it was going to be that, and it was awesome to, to see that. So I've been challenged or given the task of um, speaking on provision. And, and again, like I said, I stand before you feeling very inadequate, and, and miracles are such a lofty thing to preach on. 
And so I, I walked into this reluctantly, and I was talking with a mentor of mine, and I'm going, I said yes because I do enjoy um, when I get a chance to speak, but I was like, I feel so inadequate about speaking on miracles. And so I was kind of lamenting to uh, one of my mentors about, I don't know how to do this, I don't know how to approach that. And we talked about different uh, testimonies and, I mean, different stories, and especially in the Old Testament of God providing, like, the, uh, the woman who didn't have the resources and... and um, uh, the prophet had to go in and they started pouring oil and they kept pouring oil and kept pouring oil and there's just there's story after story after story that we could talk about how God provided um, for the needs of people um, over and over and over whether that be financially or with whatever kind of resources and so I, I kind of walked through and started thinking about all of those different stories and what I could what I could go with and as I really began to pray um, I, ch he, I was challenged by this thought and he said, hey, there's a lot of different stories that you, can, that you could preach on. He said, but the most compelling story that you could preach on is your own personal testimony. And so I, I thought about that, and I, and I kind of pushed back, and I said, well, no, I really want to do more of like a teaching and, and this, that, and the other. And he said, you know, you could really sum up the Gospels with two thoughts. He said, if we look at the Gospels, the four Gospels, he said, really, you can divide them into two categories. Um, the part of it is Jesus teaching and using stories and, and things to convey his message and to teach. And he said, the other thing is our firsthand eyewitness accounts of the miracles that Jesus did. And he said, and I would just challenge you that, that probably some of the most compelling books of the Bible are the four Gospels, and the four Gospels are A, the, the testimonies and the stories we have of Jesus, Jesus' miracles, and Jesus teaching through the power of telling stories. And he said, so I'm not saying thus saith the Lord, but I really want to challenge you to, to use your testimony. And so... I'm going, to, I'm going to unpack for you a story, but I want to tell you that I do this with a certain amount of, of fear and anxiety and, um, and just going, I hope that it resonates with you. I hope it conveys the message of God's goodness and provision. And so the first thing that I did was, like I always do, is I started with the word provision. What does the word provision mean? And the definition is the action of providing or supplying something of use and I thought about how often God provides for our needs. That, that for those of us that are mature believers, that's one of the things that we see over and over. One of the things we see over and over and over is regardless of our circumstances, God will always meet us right where we are and always provide what we need right when we need it. That he's never early, never late, but he's always right on time. And so I reluctantly began to kind of think through what this testimony would look like and I wound up in John chapter 9, and I'm going to paraphrase a little story for you but as to why I came to the conclusion to share what I wanted to share. But in John chapter 9, we find this story where one day Jesus and his disciples are walking, and there's a man that's blind, and Jesus sees him. And the disciples begin to ask a question, and it would have been common in their culture. The belief was that a person would have been afflicted with blindness or some other kind of ailment like that because of either their sin or because of the sins of their families. And so the disciples begin to ask Jesus um, a question, and we're like, all right, and this, this blind guy, who sinned? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus said, neither one, that he is in this state so basically so that you can see this miracle, this miraculous thing that I'm about to do, that you're getting ready to witness and capture something and, 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 be, and testify to something and be a first-hand witness 
to something amazing. And Jesus takes some mud and he heals the blind guy. And, and this guy's been blind since birth. And of course, everybody witnesses this healing and they're all like, in, you know, amazed by this. And the religious leaders of the day were so upset because this happened on the Sabbath and they begin to launch into this investigation to try to figure out how it happened. And they're calling all these eyewitnesses to witness this miracle. And ultimately they get him in there and they ask him what happened. And he's like, man, I don't really know what happened. I just know I was blind. I've been blind my entire life. And this guy named Jesus took some mud and he put it on my eyes and I'm no longer blind. And they keep pressing him and keep pressing him. And they bring him back for a second interview. And he said, listen, I don't know what answer you want me to give, but here's what I can tell you. I was blind, and now I see. And so I stand before you not as an expert on God's ways and not, not someone who theologically understands God's thoughts and understands God's ways, but I'm going to stand before you as a man who witnessed a miracle. And the only explanation I can give is just to testify to what I saw that what should have been wasn't and that God through the power of provision did something miraculous so back in around 2013 I was up here speaking and I got done and I went and sat down and my wife had this terrified look on her face when I sat down so the first thought that went through my mind is oh my gosh I've stood up there and preached the entire time with my pants unzipped <laughs> and so I began to like check my nose to make sure I didn't have a booger hanging out or something like that and I look at Katie and Katie's kind of got this pale look and she's like I just heard the Holy Spirit say something I don't know how to tell you this um, but I know it's from God and, um, and it's pretty overwhelming. And I was like, all right, so please tell me. She's like, God just spoke to me and told me that we're supposed to have a third child. And I immediately looked at her and I was like, no, you ate something bad for breakfast. You know, that's the reason that you don't feel well. That's the reason you're pale. It was not the Holy Spirit. You've eaten something. Um, and she's like, no, I'm telling you, God said we're supposed to have another child. And I arrogantly looked at her and said, I tell you what. I said, God will need to confirm that, not in a burning bush, but he will need to set an entire forest on fire. But I'll pray through that, all right, um, because you're my helpmate. <clears throat> that was the wrong thing to say. Um, so I, I began to pray, and, but I had all these logical excuses. We, uh, first of all, we were both over 40. I don't know if Katie was over 40. I'm, I was over 40. And... Um, we had just launched this new ministry financially. We weren't in a good place. And so I had all, I had these three excuses as to why we shouldn't have another child. And so I began to just kind of pray through it, but, but just knew that I knew that that was not what God's calling us to do. So I wind up at this conference in Atlanta. There's about 10,000 people at this conference. We go to lunch, and I go to lunch with some, some buddies um, from Crossroads, and we're all eating, and I'm kind of sharing that, you know, Katie's convinced we're supposed to have another child, and I'm not so convinced. And, and I'm like, yeah, I'm over 40. We don't financially run a good place. We've just launched this ministry. And we come back, and the speaker that's speaking to these 10,000 pastors is basically speaking on how easy it is for those of us that are mature believers to get so caught up in our theology and so caught up in our religious mindset that we, we miss sometimes the calling of God. And we, but we have very logical, what seem to be spiritually grounded excuses. And he said, I'm going to speak to three individuals here. And he began to 
to talk to, to one individual about something, and then he said, and I don't know who this one, next one applies to, but there's, a, there's somebody in here that God's calling you to increase the number of errors in your quiver and, and calling you to have another child. He's confirmed it through your wife. And so I'm starting to kind of pay attention, and he's going, you know, and, and you've got really, really good logical excuses like you're over 40, you know, financial. And he begins to name all these excuses. And, and being with the group of guys that I, I'm with and I've shared this, you know, this struggle in private, they begin to yell in front of 10,000 people, it's this guy right here, it's this guy right here. So God calls me out in front of 10,000 people that we're supposed to have another child. So I call Katie and I, I affirm that it was not eggs that she ate that morning, but rather the Holy Spirit was calling us to have another child. So we get pregnant. And about 14 weeks into that pregnancy, we lose the pregnancy. And Katie and I are left kind of bewildered and not understanding exactly what God's doing in this moment. And it was a painful time for us. Um, and, but my wife was so amazing in that moment because she knew that she knew that she had heard from God and that he had a plan and that, that this didn't change what he was calling us to do that he still had a plan and a purpose. And so the following summer, we're at the gym and we're on the treadmill and Katie looks over at me and all of a sudden just goes, I'm pregnant. And she just knew in that moment that, she, that we were now pregnant again. And so she goes to the doctor and they confirm through some tests that she's pregnant, but we're not quite far enough along. So they wanted to come back to get an ultrasound. And so we go back and we get an ultrasound and I could tell something was wrong because the tech that we had had was always normally calm. She began to be a little anxious. She leaves the room. She goes to the doctor. The doctor comes in. The doctor's looking. And before long, they're ushering us into this office. And the doctor looks at Katie and I and says, You have a corneal ectopic pregnancy. It's life-threatening. We need you to go over to the hospital immediately. We have an on-call doctor over there. We're going to need to remove this pregnancy um, because it's life-threatening. And I remember sitting in that moment and the weight of that moment falling upon me and going, man, not again. This just isn't, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what, what, what you called us to. And I remember the, the God just in his grace and his mercy reminding me that in this moment I get to choose to believe and I get to choose to walk in fear and doubt or I get to walk in the promise and the power of his provision. And so Katie and I, get in the car and we go across the street and the doctor wants to make sure that he sees everything so he runs another ultrasound and we go in and we sit down with that doctor and he said, hey, I, I, I saw the ultrasound from across the street and I, I don't know how to explain it but the, what I'm seeing is different from what they saw and he said, the, the uh, embryo is lower in your uh, uterus than it was. It, it's not something that needs to be removed right in this moment but... I do think you're miscarrying, and I think over the next few days that, that you're going to miscarry, and this is going to be painful, a painful process, but it still has a heartbeat. There's nothing I can do. Um, you'll just have to come back. Um, but, but he just didn't paint a very pretty picture of what the next few days were going to look like. So Katie and I began to call on all of our prayer warriors and people began to pray for us and we began to trust in God's provision. We began to trust it in God's word and we began to just pray, pray, pray. And we go in on Monday um, expecting, you know, hoping for the best but expecting the worst, you know, and, um, and expecting them to go, okay, you know, now it's going to be time for us to go in there and do this. And the doctor comes in after everything and goes, hey, um, it's got a heartbeat. I don't know how to explain it, but you have a viable pregnancy. 
And so Katie and I are looking at each other, and, and so, of course, you know, we're, we're overjoyed by, by this, but we recognize um, and, and humbled by the fact that we're still desperately dependent on God. And over the next few months, um, Katie had cramping and some spotting, and so we would rush to the ER thinking that, you know, this may be the time that we're miscarrying, and back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and it was just this emotional roller coaster. And then in late December, because we were going back and forth, back and forth in this roller coaster, the, the doctor wants a, a second opinion, so we get another uh, level two ultrasound. And what they begin uh, to believe is that, that the placenta has grown through the scar tissue from Katie's previous C-sections, which puts her at a high risk for a rupture. And so now, but we're only at like 27, 28 weeks, and so now it's going to kind of be a day-by-day, um, you know, you're, you're at high risk, and so we really need to keep you under um, close, close observation. So on February the 11th of 2014, my wife is walking down the steps in our house and she slips and falls on her rear end and kind of slides down the steps. Um, but, and so obviously because of the high risk, we're worried. We're, we're back and forth with the doctors. We're talking you know, to them and they're going, you know, these are some signs and symptoms you need to look at. If anything, if anything like that happens, let us know. And everything. So the rest of the day we go on, other than some, some soreness and some bruising, my wife is fine. But the next day, they're calling for this massive snowstorm here in Concord. They're calling for like 15 inches of snow. And so um, I had gone to the gym that morning, and then I think I'd run by the store for my in-laws, but, and I had my kids in the car, and Katie calls me and goes, I need you to come home immediately. I need to get to the hospital. Something is seriously wrong. I think I'm dying. So I go rushing in the door. I take one look at my wife. As a former paramedic, I knew by one look at my wife that she was going into shock and things weren't great. So we snatch her up. We rush to the hospital. And we get into the hospital, and they get Katie stabilized, and they do some ultrasounds, and they determine that there's some blood in her abdomen. And they're not really sure where the blood's coming from, but, but right now, uh, baby seems to be stable. Katie seems to be stable, so they begin to make some plans for what the next few hours or even the next day is going to look like. Um, but, but again, because of our high risk, they're like, you know, we're going to probably end up having to make some serious choices in the next few hours or in the next 12 hours. So a little while later, Katie gets up to go to the restroom, and when she comes back to the bed, she immediately um, starts to lose consciousness. She becomes pale and, um, and clammy, and she basically collapses into the bed. The nurses come rushing in. They put Gabby, I put Katie on the monitor, put Gabby's back on the monitor, and Gabby's heart rate is down in the 60s. Um, Katie's heart rate's dropping. Her level of consciousness is dropping. So within minutes, they're rushing Katie out the door to the OR, and when, when they get Katie open, um, she's almost completely dissected, um, and Gabby's almost completely out of her uterus. And so for the next four hours, the doctors feverishly work um, to, to save Katie's life and to save Gabby's life. And after um, giving Katie all the blood they can give her and doing everything that they can do, um, they decide that they're going to just you know, need to sew her up, um, let her rest, and then come back and reevaluate. But they can't get the bleeding to stop. And so someone in the OR decided that the best course of action was to pray. And they prayed, and Katie began to stop bleeding. And so they come in to talk to me, and they begin to tell me that Katie had lost a lot of blood, that 
that things were, were really, really touch and go with her, that she was on a ventilator, that she would most likely be um, in a medically induced coma for a number of days. And they began to use terms that, for me, with a medical background, knew that suggested, hey, they're uncertain whether Katie's probably had a stroke during this process, right? Like, they're not, not really sure what Katie's going to be like when she wakes up. The neotologist comes in and begins to just paint this really, really grim picture of Gabby and how poorly... Um, her APGAR scores were and everything and that we were looking, we were facing months um, in the NICU and then the, the prognosis um, for her was not going to be very well. And I remember in that moment getting weak in the knees and collapsing. My mother-in-law was in the room, Bobby was in the room, uh, Jackie Wheeler was in the room, I think Travis and the West and uh, Travis Smith and a few others had, had, were out in the waiting room, had, had driven up in the snow. And I remember my knees starting to buckle and Jackie putting her hand on my back and, and, and forcing me to stand upright. And I thought in that moment, you know what? I am going to stand firm. I'm going to stand firm in God's promise. I'm going to stand firm in God's provision. And so in that moment, we decided that the best thing for us to do was go eat. So we went down to the cafe and we began to eat. And uh, we sat there for a few hours, and they finally told us, my mother-in-law that we could, that, and I, that we could go up to Katie's room. And so when I got off the elevator, I could hear my wife talking. That she had, had was fully conscious. She was actually complaining, but we'll get to that. Um, she was fully conscious. She had extubated herself. But I guess sometime in the process of being sedated, she had scratched her eye, and she kept complaining about her eye hurting and everything, but but my wife was fully conscious, fully cognizant of what was going on, so much so that she was aware that she had pain in her eye and all this other stuff, and so just this miraculous um, acceleration of, of her recovery process happened, and within a few hours, I was able to go down to see, see Gabby, and by the next day, she was off a ventilator and on a CPAP. Within a day after that, she was off the CPAP and just in her little incubator, and 30 days later, we're being discharged from the hospital. <clears throat> and the, the doctors, as we were leaving, I'll never forget this, commented and remarked that they had no medical or scientific explanation as to why Katie or Gabby were alive other than the fact that we serve a creator that just does things beyond our understanding. Amen. And so I don't stand up here as some well-educated theologian I stand up here as a person who witnessed miracles and witnessed God provide and do something that's beyond explanation, that defies logic, defies reason, defies understanding. Just like the man who said, I don't know how he did it, but I'm telling you, I was blind and now I see. And as the band comes up, I want to I want to invite you to share in a magical moment that Katie and I got to witness a few weeks ago. And then I will kind of share with you how intimately God placed those dominoes of provision so that this video could be possible.
anatomy scan done because the placenta was so low and the way Gabby was positioned we were told that she was going to be born with a club foot and most likely have difficulty in walking if she'd be able to walk at all because we were over 40 and high risk we were able to get multiple ultrasounds that led the doctors to believe that Katie was at a high risk for a ruptured Placenta. Because Katie fell on those steps the day before, it caused a small bleed that allowed her to become symptomatic just slowly enough that it gave us time to get to the hospital ahead of the snowstorm. Because there was a snowstorm, labor and delivery, the OR, the NICU were all double staffed with offgoing and oncoming staff. Because of the snowstorm, there were multiple doctors snowed in at the hospital. Because of some of the uh, conditions that my wife was left with post her multiple surgeries and stuff like that, um, she was left in need of some reconstruction and stuff like that, and through God's provision, all of those financial means were met. And so I share this testimony with you because every argument I had, God, through His provision, placed every one of those dominoes so intimately in place so that every resource we needed, every provision we needed, was right where we needed it to be, right when we needed it to be there. So my prayer for you and I, as I close, is that you and I recognize that we serve a God who does incredible things and that we be thankful that His ways are above our ways and that we be thankful that His thoughts are above our thoughts. That we don't need to know how He does anything, that we can rest confident in the fact that you and I were dead in our transgressions. And at the right time, when we were unable to do for ourselves what needed to be done, Christ came and died for us. Because God provides provision through miracles. Thank you so much for listening to the Crossroads Church Podcast. If you'd like to listen to past Crossroads Church Podcast, you can go to mycrossroads.co slash podcast. Once again, thanks for listening.